I think nature is everywhere. It's even in cities. Uh, but the grander notion of nature and its truly wild, untrammeled sort of sense, which has become almost an artifact because humans have impacted so much in the natural world, uh, that concept of wildness, uh, that concept of something that is kind of beyond us as homo technologicus, that other thing out there, which some people might call God if you're religious, but uh, for me it's very much on Mother Nature, Flora. Uh, that, I believe, is as important as human culture. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm your host, Jennifer Jewell. Our guest today is something of a Renaissance man. A Colorado native of Greek descent, Paniotti Kelides has a background in Chinese literature as a computer systems analyst, as well as being expert in and enthusiastically curious about most things that photosynthesize and contain chlorophyll. His story as a self-described lifelong servant of the goddess Flora reminds us of the importance of sharing our passion and knowledge. Paniotti is the senior curator and director of outreach for the Denver Botanic Gardens in Denver, Colorado, where he has served for 36 years. Characterized by colleagues as an expansive, expressive, and generous gardener, educator, mentor, and friend. Welcome, Paniotti. Well, thank you, Jennifer. That, that was very generous. <laughs> well, I would really like to start off with you because you are certainly well-documented in the horticultural world uh, for your different expertises in um, various arenas. But I really want to start with where you started, your earliest memories and horticultural influences. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, well, yeah, it's easy enough. Uh, they're, like most people, plants, you know, uh, have impacted me from the time I'm very young. I was very young and... and uh, I actually have uh, wrote a little piece for Timber Press a few years ago. They had the roots of our obsession where I uh, told the sort of the main epiphany, uh, which involved one of my brothers-in-law. My sister was a lot older than me, and she got married to uh, a remarkable fellow when I was about eight, and he was a passionate gardener. And and I have to say that uh, Alan Taylor really was the one who who kind of really propelled me into the arena of uh, plants big time. Uh, and and then I've documented that in in in, um, in a piece that I wrote about him and a tribute. But really, before him, I'd say the the the, the it was um, my parents. Uh, they were passionate vegetable gardeners, which kind of opened up the arena of ornamentals for me eventually. But they were always out, sort of uh, taking care of a very large vegetable garden. And this was even before my brother-in-law came into my life. Uh, I knew that they really loved uh, fresh vegetables. And now that we're in the middle of a kind of vegetable revolution, I realized that they really had a huge impact. The modeling, having my parents out there in the vegetable patch all the time in the summertime, constantly uh, planting and taking things out and growing a lot of things that look like weeds because they love greens, uh, really stimulated my curiosity. You were born on the western slope of Colorado, and you have mentioned in other previous pieces as well this uh, influence of early natural history 
surroundings um, in that area, fishing with your dad. And um, talk a little bit about that. And that was really, for my father, the real world. And I grew up, you know, every time he um, went hunting, I, I didn't join him when I was a real small kid. But the fishing trips, because uh, we lived uh, about 150 miles from where I was born and where his heart really was in western Colorado. But we'd go over and we'd fish. And it was those fishing trips when I was a little kid, you know, five, six, seven years old with my dad that up in the flat tops and some of these rugged wilderness areas of western Colorado uh, that made me feel so comfortable in nature. And nowadays, of course, if you took a little five or six-year-old kid up to the mountains like that, you know, you'd be worried about him and fret over him. But my dad was belonged to a different era. So we'd get up in the mountains, and he'd camp me by a, a stream early in the morning. We'd hike a mile or two, and he'd drop me by a stream, and then he'd say, uh, I'll see you at lunch or dinner. And there I was in the wilderness with uh, all the mountain lions and wolves and bears and who knows what uh, all day long. And today it would be considered a child abuse. <laughs> uh, but uh, for me, those days by myself in nature were uh, uh, the genesis of a lifetime of addiction. And uh, I, I adore my father for what he did. Well, and it's interesting to me, I have uh, connections to the Paonia area um, in on the western slope of Colorado, and it's a very particular uh, environment. It's, it's, as you say, rugged, and it's high, and it's dry, and there's a very... Um, unique set of plant communities that thrive there. And I hadn't really made that connection before between um, that environment of my youth as well and what you then went on to really love in plants as you continued in your professional career. Oh, well, there's, yeah, there's no question that Western Colorado, which is so much sparser in population than the East Slope, Spending many, many weekends in the summertime and weeks uh, in that environment and, uh, and the dry sagebrush prairies would be ablaze with color when we would go in the spring. And I remember my father was kind of a gruff old macho type character. He would stop in the sagebrush when the flocks were blooming. He just loved the creeping flocks. And they smell so sweet. Our native western species have almost a tropical smell. And he'd stop the, the truck and and we'd get out, and he'd always dig up a few clumps, which we promptly killed, of course. But, um, you know, the the fact that my macho dad loved these little flowers uh, was probably uh, a signal to me that it was okay, you know, because our cultures had these very ambiguous feelings about flowers and, and men and women. And uh, at any rate, so I didn't ever have that issue, cause, mostly because that's one of the many things I have to thank my dad for. So you then went on to become um, a computer specialist and major in uh, Chinese literature and language, having these early kind of connections to both the natural plant world and then the cultivated plant world through your brother-in-law. What what then pulled you into your beginnings um, with the rock garden at Denver Botanic Gardens? Talk about that. Oh, well, I was, um, I've always, from the time I was a child, was really pretty obsessive about plants and, and the natural world. But I just thought that was, that's what you did as a hobby. Because uh, I grew up in a university town that did not have 
an agricultural college or a horticultural college. There weren't that many people I knew who practiced uh, horticulture for a living, uh, but I was surrounded by people who were practicing language, literature, and various other fields. And so naturally, I kind of went in that direction because uh, I was kind of dumb, I guess. And uh, I didn't really, you know, connect the dots. I, you know, I guess I thought that most horticulturists, um, you know, were some other kind of, you know, species or something. It was very strange because when I grew up, I spent summers in Greece as a kid. But when I, when I went back after many years, I discovered that many, many of my cousins were agronomists and farmers, of course, and, and very much part of the plant world. And I think that there was some genetics working in that favor. I was never very happy in um, teaching when I taught English as a second language and later on when I was working as a systems analyst. Uh, and I did it pretty well. I was well-liked in my department, but I was really miserable. Uh, I just really didn't like being a data drone and working with uh, that. Even though, you know, I learned an enormous amount doing that, my heart was really with plants. And so I kept volunteering at Denver Botanic Gardens at plant sales. I kept growing lots of plants on my own. Wherever I rented, I would grow flowers and then plant, go back and plant them in friends' yards or in my parents' yard. But I always yearned to have my own garden. And I was on a consulting with the Botanic Gardens as a, as a volunteer when they were building this very large rock garden. And the man who was building it, his name is Herb Shaw. He's quite an eminent landscape architect. Mm -hmm. uh, he really valued my input and he came to kind of bond with me, and he liked me, and he told the gardens that what they really needed was somebody like me to develop this new rock garden, which I had helped him create. And truth was, they didn't really have anybody on the staff who had the knowledge or the insight. So I was, um, without having had a, uh, a single course in botany or horticulture, I was hired as a curator of the rock garden uh, way back in 1980. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was what I would characterize as an enormous fluke uh, and a godsend for me because uh, that has been, you know, my my career now for many, many years. And the truth be said, uh, I'm I've been happy as a clam. And and you have done amazing work. I love this quote. Uh, that I, I read in an article or interview with you. For the gift that nature gave my father and me, I dedicate my life to bringing nature via the plant world into the lives of people. And I really, uh, for my own experience growing up in Denver and visiting the Botanic Gardens my whole life, um, see that as starting. So I, I'm sure it started before that with volunteer work and um, society membership and whatnot, but when you became the face of the rock garden at the Denver Botanic Gardens and have since really been a public face for the, the Botanic Gardens and their um, many transformations and added uh, depth over this last 36 years, it really starts right there, you're bringing plants into the lives of people. I'm very flattered. I, I don't remember that quote, but uh, I'll take cre I'll take credit for it. <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, I would say that for me, uh, I think nature is everywhere. It's even in cities. Uh, but the grander notion of nature in its truly wild, untrammeled sort of sense, which has become almost an artifact because humans have impacted so much in the natural world, uh, that concept of wildness, uh, that concept of something that is kind of beyond us as 
Homo technologicus, that other thing out there, which some people might call God if you're religious, but uh, for me it's very much uh, Mother Nature, Flora. Uh, That, I believe, is as important as human culture. And the two are both. I have I honor human civilization, human culture, but I uh, honor this thing that humans really depend upon this other vast uh, realm. And the truth is that we don't really teach it anymore. They used to teach uh, schools would have natural history classes. Uh, there would be a lot of emphasis on, on on sort of a connection because everybody had that connection. Everybody had a a, a mother, a grandfather, somebody who grew up on a farm. Nowadays, so much of humanity is, is surrounded by you know, cement, and in cities, I think that it's become almost uh, uh, an imperative, I think, for a lot of us to try and reconnect to this bigger picture, because a lot of people just lost touch with it. And that, that's what I think a botanic garden really is. For me, a botanic garden, more than anything else, is the cathedral of, of chlorophyll, so to speak, in the city that, to speak for this natural world. And uh, I really, I really believe that profoundly. We're speaking today with Paniyoti Kelides, senior curator of the Denver Botanic Garden. His work with plants, both personally and professionally, remind us of our shared imperative as plant lovers to generously spread our passions and knowledge to others. We'll be right back after the break. This is Cultivating Place. We're back after a break to continue our conversation with Paniyoti Kelides, avid plantsman, senior curator, and director of outreach at the Denver Botanic Garden in Denver, Colorado. Before the break, you were speaking of the imperative to continue to teach young people and new people about plants and to foster passion for them. You have a nice statement which refers to this. Every facet of a garden is a vessel for communicating with people, with nature, with the universe. I want people to acknowledge plants and gardening and to accord them the significance they give popular music or sports. I think Denver has modeled this this wonderful um, new way of taking their tax base and treating the botanic gardens on the same level as the art museum or the symphony and... Um, giving some funding to it so that they can expand and excel. What do you see that you're the, you personally are the most proud of at the Botanic Gardens? Well, uh, there's, you know, my tenure of all these seemingly endless decades 
I have uh, I've, it's been a little bit like riding a, a bucking bronco because mm-hmm. the botanic garden has a life of its own and a mind of its own, and we have uh, exploded. I mean, we're almost uh, eight or seven or eight times as big as when I started in terms of staffing, in terms of budget. Uh, we've we've grown enormously in my tenure, and I'd like to take credit for that, but uh, believe me, I can't. It's been uh, a phenomenal interesting thing. And as botanic gardens go, I think we really have invented the whole notion of uh, public gardening as activist part of the community. Uh, two years ago, when we had a Chihuly exhibit, we actually had the largest visitation of any public garden in North America. Wow. We also had the largest visitation of any cultural facility in Denver. And our visitation was vastly more than most of the sports uh, venues in Denver. So uh, in many ways, we were number one, and uh, we won the Super Bowl that year, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, we tend to kind of every year in the arena of gardening. It's been uh, just from strength to strength. And I think it's really due to uh, it's really due to the people really of Denver and the region, the seven-county region. Uh, no area supports the arts, to my knowledge, in the world to the extent that uh, front-range cities do. Uh, they have uh, the c- people of the city of Denver. They support us through Mill Levy. We get funding directly from them. They also support us through bond issues. They've given us literally uh, tens of millions of dollars in bonds over the years, to, uh, and, and even more to the other cultural facilities. They vote even more taxes to support culture. But then there's a sales tax, uh, one cent in every ten, dollars that's ever spent in the seven-county region, which is almost, I think, three million people. Uh, and this amounts to, has probably come to in the billions by now over the last 30 years. But uh, the Scientific and Cultural Facilities District has poured tens of millions of dollars into the museums of the Denver area. And um, I think we're thought of as a sports city with the Broncos and all these other uh, you know, very popular and well-supported teams. But uh, studies have shown that the cultural facilities, the museums, actually outpace the sports enormously in terms of visitation and support, because there are dozens of museums that have been empowered by this tax. Mm -hmm. So I would give the people in this area that credit. And uh, I I fret about it, because I travel elsewhere, and I see other cultivated cities and areas, and I think, why don't they have SCFD? And I think it's a, a series of, you know, interesting things, but I'm not sure that it's not the proximity of nature on all sides around Denver. That that really is an important thing for all of us here. And I think it's eventually going to help Denver become really uh, uh, like the Florence of America in terms of its culture. And it's, uh, uh, it may take a while. We don't have that perception yet. But I think it's inevitable. You put this much money into art and science, it's going to pay off. And it gets to um, another sentiment you've expressed, that public gardens should be forms of exploration, not just reinforcements of familiarity. And uh, myself, having moved away from Colorado eight years ago and going home and visiting the gardens, I very much see that in the work there. For instance, I definitely see this in the development of the new step garden at the Denver Botanic Gardens. Yeah, well, the, the step uh, has been a concept which uh, I have certainly been promulgating for some time now. I, yes. I, I didn't exactly invent the step. It, <laughs> it was invented way back when in Russia by, by God, I suppose. That whole step garden uh, 
was conceived and created by other people on the staff, and it's being designed, albeit by one of my proteges, and and, uh, and I've had some inputs, surely, but uh, uh, it's a good example of, I, I sometimes get credit for things that I, I have had a, a, not that much direct influence on, uh, certainly in the recent past. I'm extremely excited about that step garden now, and I'm kind of sticking my nose in, in it a bit to, be, to make sure that it you know, meets my expectations, as <laughs> I say. Uh, it, and it certainly has exceeded them thus far. I'm thrilled with the design. So do you see the plants that you're drawn to, that you collect or which you have introduced to the public through the Plant Select Program at the Denver Botanic Garden as relating back to our steppe ancestry? Well, uh, the steppe uh, is really a term that refers to an area in in the Ukraine and parts of uh, Russia. That was when the word was initially used. Uh, It's a Russian word. And uh, it was uh, Alexander von Humboldt uh, who first visited those steppes, the great German uh, biologist who first used it outside of Russia. And since that time, it's come to be applied to semi-arid continental regions in uh, other parts of the world. Uh, And, of course, the steppes of Russia turn out that they actually extend all the way to Manchuria. I mean, there's a steppe all the way across Central Asia. Uh, This environment is really... uh, the center of the great continents. It's also the environment that, that has supported the largest herds of ungulates on all four continents. Uh, ungulates being, of course, various kinds of, you know, uh, you know cattle and, and uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, antelope. But it's also supported, you know, horses and vast herds of elephants and whatever in all the continents. And those actually were the prey that lured humans out of uh, the jungle, so to speak. About three and a half million years ago, the first uh, proto-homos, the hominids, became steppe animals. And uh, in the process of doing that, we had to develop several skills. Number one, we had to, to become upright. Our brain had to explode because we had to be smarter than the predators that were specializing on us. In fact, we probably eliminated several predators as well as quite a few prey. And we had to become social and communicate. So the steppe really formed human animal in southern Africa. In fact, there's a fantastic spot called the Cradle of Mankind outside of Pretoria that I visited uh, almost exactly a year ago. And humans are stepchildren. We were born in the steppes of Africa, and we have used the steppes as our superhighway that has transported us to Asia and Eurasia and Europe and then ultimately to North and South America. And it's the, the exploitation of the steppe ungulates that led to um, uh, are exploding our populations, and then it was the cultivation of steppe plants like wheat and barley and ultimately corn and potatoes that have sustained humans. We are really uh, children of the steppes, and uh, we later conquered maritime regions because they were more uh, manageable, but uh, five of our staff have written a book about the steppes that was published a year ago uh, by Timber Press, and it's been a very successful book. But in the course of researching and writing that book, I've realized that much of our very psychology of, as humans is really has been for, for, formed and formulated by three and a half million years of evolution in the steppe environment, something that most people don't even know. Uh, most of the plants that I have put into the Plant Select Program and others have put into the Plant Select Program, of course, many of them have steppe uh, 
uh, antecedents because this is a program aimed at uh, elevating the horticulture of uh, the Rocky Mountain and Plain States primarily. So we want to get plants that are well adapted. So naturally, you go to those. But uh, I'm uh, uh, I've been called a kind of a plant. It's not a nice word, but plant whore. They say I put the whore in horticulture because I like all plants so much. Describe for us your home garden, Paniotti. Oh, uh, my, my home garden. Well, uh, I was very lucky. Uh, uh, about 20 years ago, my ex-wife and I, she, I really have to give her a lot of credit because she was, she was a fanatic. And uh, uh, we had a nice bungalow in Denver, and it was a, with a wonderful garden that's been featured in uh, Ken Drews featured it in the Plant Collector's Garden, for example. It was pretty well known. It was a nice garden, but it was too small, and our kids needed some space. So we eventually we ended up finding an amazing place, thanks to a fantastic realtor. It's on a hill with an incredible view of the Rockies, and it's about half an acre. Which uh, We didn't get the marshes and the cliffs, but we did get a slope, almost uh, 25 feet from one end of the property to the other. And uh, It's on uh, pure sand. It's about 80 feet of pure sand, so drainage is not a problem. Uh, and uh, 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 Gwen, my ex, ended up, who's a wonderful designer, did a beautiful uh, design around it. We brought in quite a few tons of rock for a big rock garden, and, and there's some big perennial borders, and there's a vegetable garden. And half the garden is just native prairie that we've tried to reestablish in, in western habitats. Uh, I have about 5,000 kinds of plants growing in this garden. And, uh, <laughs> it's a garden of a plant fanatic, but... Uh, uh, I'm, uh, I maintain it pretty much with uh, my partner right now. Uh, she, she does the vegetable garden, and she does some of the perennial sections, and I do the rest. And, and yeah. it is my pleasure. I have to say that my garden every day, even when it's snowy like this morning, I always have to take a stroll. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you and, um, yeah, to hear the depth of your uh, both love of the goddess Flora, and your depth of knowledge about her. Oh, thank you. I, and I especially enjoy talking to her handmaiden. <laughs> thank you so much. My pleasure. And thank you so much for listening in. Join us again next week as the conversation continues with Sam Lemhenny, Chief of Shows and Events for the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, who hosts annually the revered Philadelphia Flower Show. It is the oldest and longest-running horticultural event in the United States. We love the fact that our show, even though it is inside, um, will promote that positive feeling that you get when you're outside. And, and you're breathing in all this great oxygen and you're smelling all the great flowers um, and scents from the garden, that uh, it, it really has a huge impact on you um, physically because um, you're actually doing physical work um, and also mentally as well. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schultz. Podcasts and photographs can be found weekly at mynspr.org. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.